Welcome to Paris Good Food and Wine. I'm your host, Paige Donner. You're listening to the original radio show and podcast about food and wine, broadcast from Paris, France. On Paris Good Food and Wine, we delve into the topics of food, wine, and all their related subjects, talking with an array of people whose expertise both pepper and help ferment the food and wine scene in Paris, France, and the world at large. We're glad you can join us here for the delicious stories we bring you on Paris, good food, and wine. Please leave your comments, reviews, and suggestions. You can also contact us at our Twitter, at Paris Food Wine, or on our website, parisfoodandwine.net, or on my Instagram page, P-A-I-G-E, Food Wine. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and wherever you download your podcasts. Hello, and welcome back to Local Good Food and Wine. I hope everyone's had a wonderful summer full of sunshine and relaxation. To kick off our season eight, episode 65, I sit down with mom. Yep, mom. Here she tells us all about her memories of living in Afghanistan in 1968 and what it was like as a young mother to go and shop for fruits and vegetables at the local bazaars, buy warm naan bread from the bakery who baked the bread in their earthen ovens around the corner, and otherwise care for her young little family as my father taught journalism at the University of Kabul. I hope you find these first-hand memories as enriching and vividly told as I have. And with that, I introduce you to my mother, Annette Donner. This episode of Paris Good Food and Wine has been brought to you by Paris Food and Wine. You can find us at parisfoodandwine.net. Now you can find Paris Good Food and Wine on iHeartRadio, as well as on Spotify. And also, as always, on iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, and Stitcher. So, so mom, so this is fun. This is something that Afghanistan is a topic that's come up in our family stories throughout my lifetime. And um, right now, as the world is focused on Afghanistan and the chaos that's been ensuing, um, leaving everybody uh, who's watching quite distraught, uh, not to mention the people who are actually in the midst of it. But that's why I wanted to, to talk to you again and see if we can mine some of your your treasure of memories that you have and hold from the time we lived in Afghanistan in 1968 to 1969, which it's hard to fathom that that's over 50 years ago, mm. over half a century ago. But the experiences that you had as a young mother um, with, you know, dad as a Fulbright scholar uh, teaching at the, uh, at the university in Kabul, and then you with these two little babies, I thought we could focus on 
on on the food and what it was like and the human experiences that resulted in maybe you know sharing of tea and and shopping in the bazaar what what do you think about that mom oh that sounds great that sounds great there's a wonderful memories connected with with all of those things yeah you know it's really kind of it's so unique that we that uh, we grew up what looking at these slideshows that you and dad used to present to us as children and hearing these these memories but now when i think about it you know as an adult and i think about you as a 22 year old mother of two uh toddler well not even toddler what i think i was maybe one and chris was maybe two going on three um yeah, <laughs> yeah living in a in a country like afghanistan and, you know, basically, you know, fulfilling the role of a housewife. I mean, how did you, how did you even like set up, you know, your kitchen? Like what, like what did the house look like? How, how did you even organize yourself to prepare children's meals, family meals? <laughs> that's a, that's a good question. Well, the, the, the house was ready for us when we got there, the Fulbright office that was that was supporting us as dad as a professor of journalism at the university under Fulbright. Uh, the house was already prepared for us, and uh, the wife of the office manager was really kind. She got everything into the house, down to the paper towels in the in the kitchen. But the kitchen was uh, had a refrigerator. It had a, a good sized refrigerator. Nothing super modern, but it worked. And there was a stove and an oven that worked. That was great. And then a huge table along one wall that was the counter space. And uh, it had a like oil cloth on top of it. Uh, it was kind of a crude table. That's okay, everything, but it worked. So I didn't have to do a whole lot in the very beginning because Fulbright Office had provided for us um, house help, uh, one man who was house help and another man who was a cook. And the cook had experience working with, with foreigners, with Westerners. So I don't remember the details of the first time that I worked with him and talked with him and showed him the food that I might want for the kids or whatever. But I was with him in the kitchen in the beginning because I didn't know what he knew and he didn't know what I wanted. And so we, and he spoke a little bit of English. So that was, that alone was quite an experience. And who am I that knows anything about having house help? And having a cook at my disposal, it was a whole new experience. And I probably got in his way in the beginning, <laughs> but he was a an more elderly man, but he did have credentials because he'd been trained to work with Americans. And the house help man that we had, his name was Wali. Um, he had no experience whatsoever, but he had a heart of gold and he just did everything that, that he could to help us get used to. And he was a father of two children in some village about two days walk away. So um, he helped me go into the bazaar to go shopping. So that's a whole story. You want to hear that part? of I it? do. I really do. I, I would. I really want to hear about what it was like to go into these bazaars. I mean, you know, when you think about fresh markets nowadays, you know, everything is, uh, you know, fruits are come washed and vegetables are freshly picked and crisp. But I mean, what, what, what did a bazaar look and smell like in Afghanistan, Kabul in 1968? 68. Well, um, there, each bazaar is particular to its 
produce. So there was the melon bazaar and there was the fruit bazaar, sometimes an apple bazaar, and sometimes it was mixed with all the other fruits that you could think of. And then there was the meat bazaar, which had carcasses hanging from hooks with flies and wasps all over them. And if you wanted to, uh, so you can imagine that the smell was, you know, not perfect, but you, it was fine. You just were used to it. You know, that's just the way you were. It was. And um, eventually the different vendors got to know me. Now, Wally, Wally went with me. Uh, I went with him a couple of times. First of all, to find out where are the bazaars and how do I get there? We had a car. We had a little VW bug that the office had provided us. So I could um, take the car and learn how, where I could park it so it was fairly safe and, and didn't have to walk too far. And I had you guys with me. So, so it was that balance as well. So going into the fruit bazaar was the most colorful, kaleidoscopic experience you can imagine. And if anybody goes onto the internet, looks at the fruit bazaars in Afghanistan, they'll see the absolute gorgeous display. They were geometrically sometimes displayed in baskets and the colors were, would range from orange to red, to purple, to red, to orange, to green, to yellow. It was just beautiful. And um, so I learned, the, the vendors got to learn who I was because I was struggling trying to learn the numbers and I want one of those or I want five of those or one kilo or half a kilo or whatever. And they would laugh and, and they, they became my friends kind of. So, so that, that alone was just a beautiful experience to go into the fruit bazaar. And, uh, but we always were very careful when we brought it home, you know, a lot of this, the food was grown in night soil, which is why we didn't, we were warned not to buy lettuce because it absorbs that much of the night soils. But the other, the other fruits like apples, we, apples and or, let's see, oranges we could peel, but uh, apples, oranges, grapes were very dangerous because they're so tight together. And when I say dangerous, meaning they needed to be cleaned thoroughly. Mm -hmm. So we had a whole system in the kitchen that had a bucket that we scrubbed the fruit down with. And then the next bucket was we soaked it. And that was a part of Clorox and a part of water. I forget what the what it was, how much, one to two or whatever. And um, they had to soak in there for a good 20 minutes and then they were brought out. And now, now here's the trick. If you wash them again and rinse them off under the water that came out of the tap, you were taking the fruit back to its original dangerous eating situation because the water that came out of the tap was not clean. There was a sewer system and the water delivery system sometimes overlapped in the very, very old pipes in the neighborhood. And so sometimes they would leak into one another. So we never drank the water from the tap nor washed everything and then put it in our mouths. So we had sterile water, quote unquote, in the kitchen. And these were two or three, I think, very large, oh, I forget what they call them, containers, aluminum containers that had, quote unquote, clean water in it. And that water we got every week from the American Embassy Deep Well. So once a week, I would put you kids in the car in the front seat, and I would put the three big water containers in the backseat of our little VW bug. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
and drive to the American embassy. And I had the credentials. They'd let us in and we'd go over to where the water was. And there was an Afghan who worked there who saw us every week. We weren't, we were among many who would come there to get the clean water. And we'd fill up the tanks and we'd drive back home. And then uh, Wally would pick them up out of the back of the car and take them into the kitchen, put them up on that big table that we had. So that was water that was used for your juices. I was still into Tang in those days. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And uh, your juices and uh, rinsing anything that needed to be, we want, that was going to go into our mouths basically. And we had a a smaller container in the bathroom upstairs so that you children were taught if you brushed your teeth, you did not turn on the tap in the sink. You used the tap that was on the big container that was next to the sink. And that was the water that you used for brushing your teeth and so on and so forth. (laughs) So, um, wow. uh, It sounds like, yeah, let me, let me jump in there and unpack a a couple of those, a couple of those points. It's, you know, very, Firstly, I want to congratulate you. It's it's so richly descriptive. You know, your memories are still quite poignant, um, you know, even 50 odd years later. So, uh, you know, obviously the experience made an indelible mark on you, which is, which is, you know, it's, it's wonderful to, to recognize, you know, and I, and I, and I do want to recognize that here. Um, you know, you. it's funny because it's like, you know, us from the Western world, we're so used to just turning on the tap and having potable water, you know, at our, at our fingertips. And so what you're describing sounds like a bit of a hardship. And yet I'm sure we were living in the lack of luxury compared to, for example, where maybe Wally lived two days walk away. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And just down the street, we lived in what's called Shari now or the new part of a Kabul. And there was a mosque, a beautiful, big blue mosque, just about three, four blocks away. And five blocks away, you got onto the main street and, and got into Kabul. So we weren't we weren't that far outside of the city. However, we were on the edge of Shari now. And so outside of our house was a dirt open space that served as a pathway. I mean, it was very wide, like a three lane street, if you want to give you a size. And to the left of our, to the right of our house, it just petered out into the desert. There it was. Oh my gosh, golly gee. And the camel caravans would come by every morning and they'll clink, clink, clink of the beautiful bells that were around their neck. So we'd wake up to the sound of the camel caravans going out to the desert. And to the left of the house, Towards the town, then there were some Afghans who had very fancy houses, much fancier than ours. But there were also, a la, uh, on the side streets, there were also the typical Afghan lower lower income, poorer Afghans who just lived hand to mouth, right? So we would be we would be faced with the incredible disparity of rich and poor every single day every single day. And the little kids out on the street in front of our house, they would climb the wall to peer over the wall at you guys. And uh, what did they call us? I forget. Uh, Ferangi, I think they call us, you know, foreigner. And uh, the kids wanted to play with you kids and the ball would come kicking over the side of the wall and you guys would run for the ball and uh, take it back out to the kids. And they were all little ragged kids, you know, they didn't have baths every day and they didn't they had where they were barefoot and they had some kind of a biscuit container on their back that had just a rope was the strap that kept it on. 
And all day long, they were supposed to pick up cow or camel dung and put it in this container, like a square biscuit container. And that was the fuel for the evening meal. And they had to take that home as much as they could find. So, so yes, we, yes, we lived in the lap of luxury compared to a lot of our neighbors, the, the Indian couple that lived next door to us, the Indian family, mm-hmm. um, to this day, I have no idea what they did and why they were in Afghanistan, but they had a cow and that cow they put in their garage and the garage shared a wall with our kitchen. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Can you imagine the smells that would come out of there and roaches that found a new home in our kitchen? And oh, oh my, it was um, it was quite the experience. And of course, the flies that came off of them, off of uh, the streets where the, the local toilet was along one of the walls about a block away and the um uh, the cow next door. So we knew any kind of fly that came into our house ha- had potentially had uh, feces on its uh, leg, on the hairs of its leg. And so wherever it landed, it was going to deposit something. And so we were always trying to be as careful as possible that we just wiped down everything before it was used. So, yeah. Gosh, it must have been so nerve wracking, especially, you know, with two little kids uh, as as we were, as you, you know, as you had uh, crawling around on the floors, you know, uh, maybe testament to the fortitude of kids immunity systems that, that we, that we survived that. Now we talked about the, the bazaar, the fruit bazaar and the, and vegetables. And I wanted to touch on one point when you were haggling with them, were you doing that in, uh, in Farsi? That's the Afghan language, right? Farsi? Yeah, Farsi. Yeah, I was doing it partially in Farsi, partially with my fingers. <laughs> mm-hmm. And at, at first, Wally was teaching me. Wally would tell me, you know, how to say a half a pound or a half a kilo, these kilos. And um, and sometimes like in the. Um, so, yes, yes, it was a combination of both. But I never did speak Farsi very well. It was just enough to for them to giggle at me and help me along. And then it turned out that one of the, the one of the meat vendors Remember I told you how the carcasses were hanging on hooks yeah. and I couldn't tell the difference from a sheep carcass and a cow carcass, a calf carcass or anything. But so it, it turned out he spoke English pretty well and I was struggling along. And so I'd point to a carcass and I'd point to the area that I wanted, the shoulder or the something, the leg, leg or something. And he'd take his big machete and he'd, uh, he'd whack it off <laughs> and all the flies and all the uh, wasps would, lift up in a cloud <laughs> from the carcass. And then he'd, he'd take an old newspaper and he'd wrap it up in the old newspaper and uh, he'd weigh it. And I'm going, I didn't want that much, but I couldn't tell him. And then, you know, so it was always a thing about, no, no, I don't want the hoof. And I don't want the, <laughs> I just wanted the shoulder. <laughs> so it was always a bit of a circus and fun and and, and everything was so inexpensive. It didn't really matter what it cost, but we were very vigilant to not overpay and become the dirty rich American, you know? Yeah. And so we wanted to know what the prices basically were and Wally helped me with that. So I kind of was able to stay within the, the parameters of what the normal, what an Afghan would pay. And then I was willing to pay a little bit more, you know? Sure, sure. Yeah, no, that, that, makes, that makes sense. Now, I know when when you're a foreigner like that, especially, you know, we're talking 50 years ago, 
generally speaking, there's a fairly tight expat community. And I'd love to see what kind of, you know, meals were maybe shared, uh, you know, with that expat community. But first, uh, were there, was there ever a time when you were able to share tea maybe with another Afghan family or? Yes, uh, not in, not in our neighborhood. um, But when dad and I would take, would get our little VW bus and we'd go, uh, a bug, and we'd go exploring. One time we went a couple of miles outside of Kabul and there was a beautiful river flowing by. And um, we stopped for, uh, just to, to let you guys run around and we spread a little blanket on the ground and pulled out some juices that we were going to, and some, an Afghan family that we hadn't noticed was on the other side of a big grove of trees and they had seen us and they came over and, and invited us to come, 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 go to where they were to sit down with them because they had little children just like you. And this was a great experience for everybody. They saw American kids in the you little American clothes, you know, and we saw the Afghan kids uh, and they were all playing together and they offered us tea, wonderful tea and uh, they had milk that they put into the tea, which is very honoring of you as the guest. And then they put a lot of sugar in. Um, they didn't even ask how much we wanted because we under we found out later that the more sugar they put in, the more they were honoring you. Mm-hmm. So this was a beautiful experience. The environment was gorgeous. The people were super friendly, and the wife, of course, was very curious. And she did not. She had thrown back her shadri, so I could see her face. And she, she, I guess the husband was pretty modern because he allowed that in the in the presence of dad who was his foreigner, right? So maybe this was a big excursion out of their confined life, you know, among their peers, I don't know. But it was a lovely experience. And then another time we went to a village called Istalif. And again, Istalif uh, has been in the news over the last 20 years, so sadly, but it's a beautiful little village that was on the side of, kind of on the side of a hill and there was a valley, and then there was a huge grove of trees. And often people would go there and throw down their Persian rugs and have an afternoon tea. So dad and I followed suit. We went there. We wanted, we went into East Alif, but before that, we stopped at this small at this place so that we could again, you guys could run around and we could have some juices and crackers and stuff like that, you know, good old American style stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh um and again, there were families all around us and little Afghan kids and looking at us and you looking at them. And we have a, some cute pictures of that with East Alif in the background. And uh, it was there a little bit dark because it was quite shady where we were. But that was another beautiful experience where we shared tea with one another. I mean, the hospitality of the Afghans is just unrivaled. It is just beautiful. And they wanted to be friends. They wanted to know us and meet us to the best of their ability, because we were quite unusual in 68, 69 to have these little Western family go to a go to the normally Afghan enclave of tea drinking on across the valley from East Aleph. You know, we were but dad was like that. He just go, come on, you know, let's go. (laughs) Yeah, you guys were very uh adventurous in terms of you know assimilation and and seeking friendship and also to put it into a bit of historical context i mean that's very interesting about the, the shadre uh, correct me if i'm mistaken mom was that the era um like isn't it something like pre-1970 
1972 or something where there was a little bit of an opening like you weren't cultural opening I mean or western orientation in the sense that you you yourself you weren't uh, obliged to wear a veil when you went out were you no, it would have probably been an insult if I had. I think under some circumstances of safety, uh, a couple of women may have done that. I know some of the journalists of these of these days will have done that. But in our day, it was called the golden era. Now, yeah. the Russians did not come and invade until 1979, and we left in 1969. So, so the years prior to our being there, the Afghanistan was kind of growing. The Peace Corps had come in in, I think, 64. And we got there in 68. So the Afghanistan was one of the last countries to bring to allow the Peace Corps to come in. And so they were already making a bit of a uh, impression on the Afghans with the Westerners. Otherwise, it was just, you know, hippies that would go through. But so so then as we came in, uh, the king and had told his people, I want my women, the women not to have to wear the veil. And his wife wore a shawl, an easy shawl over the head and around the shoulder, but she did not wear the veil or the shadri. They call it burqa these days. In those days, we called it a shadri. It's about the same thing. It's that long flowing that has just the screen across the eyes. It's just, oh my gosh, we used to watch these poor women try to cross the street where there was no traffic control in Kabul, Afghanistan. And they had to pull it way, they had to pull it really tight over their eyes with one hand so that they could see left and right before they ran out into the street, dragging one of their children behind them. Oh, it's just, oh, it was so sad to watch. But when dad was at school in the, in the university, none of the girls wore shadri. They were all probably from privileged families um, that because they were at the university, but they were Western clothes and makeup and uh, jewelry, man, they knew how to dress. It was just beautiful stuff, very modern looking kind of. And that was all through the time we were there, but there was different stratas of society. And dad dealt with the upper, quote unquote, upper class, I would imagine, because they were at the university, as I said, but the others were from villages or they were from a um, a more constrictive family background where the man, of course, you know, ruled the woman completely. You will wear a shadri because that's what everybody does. And so whenever I went into the bazaar, I was often the only person there without a shadri, without a veil. Mm -hmm. I always had long sleeves and either, you know, some kind of uh, tights on my legs if I wore a skirt. So I was covered enough and and in those days, not today, a lot of the Western women there will wear a shawl. Uh, I mean, a small scarf. I keep saying a shawl, but it's a small scarf that will go over the head and then around the neck. In those days, uh, the Americans weren't wearing those. And I didn't see anybody wearing it. Or I would have. It might have been a little more uh, respectful. But in the bazaars, the women were wonderful to me. I was trying to buy something a little something for one of you kids in the children's clothing bazaar. I remember every item had its own bazaar. And, um, and I knew the guy was, was charging me a lot more than he should have. And so I told him in, maybe he wanted 10 Afghans and it was worth two. So I said, I'll give you four. And he said, no, 10. And I said, four. And two women who were standing next to me wearing shadri spoke to him sharply and he said, okay, four. <laughs> so the women's, and I would have loved to have sat down and talked with them and, 
in some corner somewhere or somewhere where they could throw their shadri off and I could speak with them. But my role in Afghanistan was not one that I could was in Afghan homes at all. The Peace Corps had that and I would listen to their stories. And that was wonderful. I lived vicariously through the Peace Corps, but um, I didn't get that chance hardly maybe once or twice. So, yeah, well, I would imagine, I mean, a lot of times roles are stratified, especially when you're in a country that's only just, you know, opening up to the West as it, as it was back then. No, these are all really, you know, it's just so insightful. I mean, it's, it's a glimpse of Afghanistan that, you know, no one ever gets to see. And I, I remember when, before dad passed away, you know, a couple of years ago, we had, we had been talking about you know, putting on maybe some kind of a, a photo exhibit of these beautiful, those beautiful photos that you guys still have yeah. of this entire experience. But, but we'll leave that for another conversation. You know, um, you just alluded to community integration. So what are some of the, maybe, do you have like maybe one uh, memory that stands out among the rest for perhaps any dinners you guys went to with the university faculty or I mean I know you you were very close with a couple of the other Peace Corps couples or some of the, the Peace Corps couples dad was that was Fulbright but um or maybe at the embassy was there any kind of a social gathering that you recall oh yes that was the absolute social activity of all the expats. There were about a thousand Americans and there were about 1200 Russians. The Russians were all inside their compound, whereas the Americans lived in individual homes around. And um, so that was the social life of the U.S. Embassy and U.S. Aid were the most uh, people that were there. There were Peace Corps volunteers, I forget how many in the country, maybe 60. And then there were only four Fulbrighters, two students, and then two professors and dad was one of the professors. And so there was always a party going on. There was always a party and we were constantly being invited. And our problem was finding somebody to stay with the children. And so the Fulbright, the Fulbright manager and his wife had a teenage daughter. So she would come and stay with, um, with you kids while we went to these parties. So the parties were always hugely catered. I mean, cooked, by the embassy or the aid staff. And now these Afghan staff people were highly trained, highly familiar with the American style of food, but everybody wanted to serve the Afghan food, the palau, the palau, which was a huge mound of rice over sometimes some kind of meat inside and um, uh, beef always, never pork, right? This, these are Muslims and wonderful, wonderful food tables laden with food. It was amazing. And always something new to try, something new to eat. And I remember at the Indian embassy where we had been invited because we were the new people in town, the Indian embassy, I, I bit into some meat that was highly spiced. And I just, I, it was very difficult for me to be able to pretend like I wasn't burning on the inside and I had to quick find some something to drink to kind of. But anyway, that, that was just one little incident. I'm as beautiful food, rice and potatoes and vegetables and meat and amazing, amazing layouts. Yeah. And we were very privileged to be invited to all these places. Um there was an evacuation list out of Afghanistan in case anything happened that the embassy held. And the embassy staff went first, aid people went second. 
Uh, Peace Corps people went third if they had to be air evacuated and the Fulbrighters went fourth. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. So we considered ourselves to be very privileged to actually be invited to these places, to these homes and to see how the Americans lived. Oh, my gosh. We lived in squalor compared to them, although we had a beautiful house, two stories, marble floors, big windows, carved ceilings. It was lovely. It was just lovely. And uh, but I don't. uh, But. That's just the way it is in these foreign countries. Aid and embassy take care of them themselves, and they and the the staff were sometimes um, wearing matching outfits, matching turbans, and matching jackets and stuff. And and uh, Dad and I would think, well, okay, but <laughs> probably you know put on for the party. And they, they were very beautifully catered, beautifully hosted. And everybody was very gracious. But you know what? There's one thing that I want to say about food that I don't think that these embassy and aid houses ever got that we got being on the outskirts of the modern area of Afghanistan, of Kabul. We got donkey serenade every morning. (laughs) That was one of the first things that we heard. Now, we heard during the night, we heard the camel caravans going by. But first thing in the morning, we would hear this cry, bonjano rumi, bonjano rumi, if I'm pronouncing it right. I think that was the eggplant. Well, we didn't know what this was Mm -hmm. until finally one day I I went to the, there was was a wall around our uh, building around our house, which is very typical in Afghanistan. And so there's a door in the wall that you walk through to go out onto the street. So we went to this door, uh, walked through the small yard and went to the door and opened the door. And we could see this man leading a donkey down the street towards coming towards our house. And he was the one crying out, bonjour Rumi. And so he was saying, I have fresh eggplant here, come and get them. And he had a donkey with um, side saddle sacks on either side of the donkey full of eggplant. And another day it was carrots and another day it was pots and pans and another day it was something else. And it was just a wonderful serenade. Sometimes the donkeys would be verbal and sometimes not. So it was a great excitement for you kids to run out and see the, the donkey serenade go by every morning. Yeah, that's worth that's worth its weight in gold. That's that's for sure. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you know, you're you're there for uh, you know a year or or short too, and and then you're gone. And and so if you don't have those experiences, what how how did you spend your time? You, you know, so yeah, that's that's uh, yeah, it's very very insightful. Any final, you know, kind of you know, keep. I know there's a lot that you can share, mom, and and. And I know over even throughout my lifetime, we've only just touched and you know, scratched the surface of, of all the experiences that you guys that you know we had. Um, but since we were so little uh, as kids, I, you know, I, I have really no recall uh, of that time, you know, direct recall. But um, is is there anything else you that comes to mind? I mean, in terms of you know the food aspect of it, I I know that it was impossible to avoid getting dysentery, which is probably, that, that's a whole topic un, unto itself. It is food related though, because of the hygiene, but maybe we'll leave that, that insightful uh, experience to, to another conversation. But, but other than that, was there, for example, maybe a food that you had really craved that once we got back to, to Chicago, you know, you ran out to the nearest grocery store to get or? 
You know, one of the things that I've been, I have noticed uh, when I have been overseas or gone into different cultures and stuff, when I have come back, I, I know some Americans have said, oh, I just so miss a McDonald's or I so miss a, this ice cream or I so miss this or that. And I'm thinking, I never have. Um, and maybe I have and I don't remember it, but it was not something that I craved. I was thankfully extremely adaptable to whatever was the situation that I was in. Uh, I, I'm so grateful for that because it made living overseas in the different places I've lived very, very, you know, easy, easier to live in. And one of the things that dad and I really liked to do with you guys was we would go and walk along the main street or some side streets or walk through the bazaars. And there was always the street vendors. The street vendors were just wonderful to see. They had these most primitive setups of being able to grill uh, what we call this, not yakitori, you know what I mean, on the stick. Skewered meat or something? Uh, Yeah, skewered meat, exactly. And and we felt safe eating it because it came right off the fire, you see. And so we would often, and then they had the naan, which is the bread, mm-hmm. which is a whole nother story. The bread, oh my gosh, it's, um, you know, a flat bread, unleavened bread. And the thing that dad liked to do with you, he would take you on uh, on, his, on his shoulders and he would walk over to the nearby naan store. And the naan store was a hole in the wall that had a frame in the front, which was an open window. And there were three or four guys sitting inside on a raised earth mound. This is the best. <laughs> and the earth mound had a hole in it. Now, these guys had huge turbans around their faces because inside this hole, like a, like a beehive with a big hole in the top, okay, mm-hmm. a round beehive, that beehive was underground. So they were sitting on the outside of what you might call a beehive. On, on some dirt and mud and, and all dried. And inside there was a roaring fire and they had, um, they had dough. One person was creating the dough into a certain size. Another person was taking those dough balls and putting them on a paddle. The third guy took the paddle and flattened it out, flattened out the dough leaned forward into the beehive. I'm sorry, I keep saying that, but into the hole and slapped the dough against the inside of the wall of that, okay? And so the heat from underneath was going to bake that. Simultaneous with slapping one piece of dough onto the wall, he picked up another one that was just falling off the wall because it had been baked. It was finished with baking. So the timing was amazing. And he'd pick up that one that was just falling off the wall on his long stick flat paddle. And he'd he'd push it over to the fourth guy who was now stacking it up and getting ready to sell them. And so they were super warm. They were stacked up just inside this open window and there was one guy selling them. And so Afghan kids would go every morning or every evening to the non place <laughs> and they would buy eight or 10. And in the wintertime, they'd carry them on their heads and and fold them over to cover their ears because it was so cold and the non was still warm from the <laughs> and and. Uh-huh. We have pictures of dad carrying you with some naan and carrying you in a basket with the naan on the side. And, and uh, it was, naan was absolutely, so on the street corners, the naan was also being baked there fairly close by. 
we wouldn't take the naan that was sitting next to the skewered meat. We would buy the naan coming right off of the, just for extra safety for our poor little Western bellies, you know. Yeah. And then we would have the, you, you just fold a piece of naan over the skewer and you'd pull the skewer out. And so now you had um, these pieces of meat inside the warm naan. And it was a wonderful breakfast, lunch, dinner, anything. And we've got pictures of Wally with you showing you, our Christopher, uh, your brother, how to uh, hold the non and how to pull the skewer out. And, and then just wonderful stories. Yeah, wonderful. The non was, dad used to always talk about the non. And when he found a store somewhere in San Francisco, I think he was just beside himself. Oh, I found a non place. It's almost the same. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember him. I remember him talking about that. I you know, those are the kinds of, I mean, even as you're describing it, the, the visuals are, are very rich, you know, the beehive earthen oven. And, you know, I can almost see like a, almost like a pizza wooden paddle kind of a thing. I mean, I, I can see it as you're describing it. Oh, good. But, but the smells of the fresh bread is something that, you know, you, you hold in your own sense memory. And that, that's something that you can't actually, you know, it, it's hard to, it, that, that part is hard to, transmit you know to, to someone else that smell of that fresh baked warm yes. bread and how it feels in your hands you know that that kind of a thing but um yeah yeah re well really really rich I mean it's it's a you know it's a country that has a lot of culture oh it's just a heartbreak where we are today and the, the women are resilient they are strong they are smart they will do something, they will make things happen even underground. They are amazing women. And, and I just, uh, the whole situation is a total heartbreak. And I, I'm so grateful that I have these beautiful, beautiful memories and all these beautiful pictures that dad and I took and in the coochie camps, you know, the, the coochie gypsy kind of people, you know, the nomads, all the experiences we had with them and stuff. Just, yeah, it, it's a heartbreak, but God bless them and, and may things go well for them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I guess that's a good place to, to sign off, you know, for, for the conversation for now, I, I, I'm really grateful mom that you were able to, to share this and, and, um, and I'm so impressed that these memories are still so, so real and, and vivid. Well, I'm so happy to have the opportunity to talk about it. You know, not everybody there's one person where I live who's been to Afghanistan and she was asking me the other day. And so we sat down and shared stories and it was the first time in a long time. So thank you for asking me. It's been my honor to speak about the wonderful Afghans that made our year so rich when we were there. And we're so good to you kids. Oh my gosh, they were so good to you kids. <laughs> okay, good. All right, thank you, mom. You're welcome. I'm Paige Donner, your host, of Paris, good food and wine. Find this and more episodes of Paris, good food and wine on SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, TuneIn Radio, and also on iTunes. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Paris, good food and wine. I want to say a big thank you, a calm merci beaucoup, to everyone who helped make this podcast possible. 
and that includes you too, our listeners. We greatly appreciate that you listen to us. We really do. So leave your comments, suggestions, and reviews on our website at parisfoodandwine.net. You can find our show notes at Local Food and Wine. That's localfood.wine. Also localfoodandwine.wordpress.com. On Twitter, you can find us at Local Food Wine and at Paris Food Wine. So from your host and producer, me, Paige Donner, I want to wish you a bonne degustation and à toutes et à tous à votre santé from Paris, good food and wine. <laughs>